0: So how do you feel about the representation of old age and dementia and and people like you in fiction, drama and the media? Wait a minute, how
1: do I feel about uh, the representation of old age and dementia? I don't know, really, but I would assume that the people writing that would be living within the normality of normal earthly existence, and so their vision of uh, the accuracy of what they were looking at in, in, in the demented individuals they were considering should be as accurate as things are within normal life.
0: Well, though, I mean, many many people would say that that the that, that often the media and art and things like this get get things very wrong, misrepresent people yes. very
1: badly. Yes but it's a misrepresentation within the kind of large context of kind of normality, the sort of what I call the normality of earthly existence.
0: I don't know. I mean, why do you call it the normality of earthly existence? Uh, can we unpick un- that phrase a little bit? Oh, I
1: mean, well, that's just a phrase that I found when it, when I was writing about Esther and And...
0: Esther-Anne, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with that is a, a, a picture that my dad talks to she's in the room with us but she's only a printout here there's an actual, uh, there's an actual painting of her up in Willowbridge where you first met her, right? which is where my, my older sister lives um, and you talk to esther Ann about existence uh, and I guess esther Ann has helped frame your understanding of, of, of dementia, of consciousness, of who you are now
1: except that I don't know Esther like, I mean, the, the, the picture of Esther Anne is just a picture. And there's a painting, and I have photographs of the painting, which I've brought back. But I'm not talking to that painting or that picture, or I'm not even aware who she, who, who she is or what she is. She's somebody who's dead. I mean, she died some time ago, and uh, I seem to have some connection with something which, is, which her picture doesn't represent but offers so it's inexplicable in a way but it's you know something I'm trying to deal with again
0: I mean that yeah I mean that that relationship is with with this kind of memory of the past of like this kind of representation of a person it's there's so many things removed I guess that that probably speaks to your experience of of dementia of memory of the way that things connect but disconnect at the moment In a way it does,
1: yes. But in another way, it's this whole question of spirituality and materiality, really. It's not something which is within the area open to knowledge. Knowledge is the sort of great thing of earthly existence. I mean, knowledge is what science preaches as as the ultimate understanding. I mean, I have great admiration for science and great belief in it. I also think that scientism is sometimes wrong.
0: to a sunless sea. Memories of my dad. Episode 14. Andre Gore's tweet. Specific content note for this episode. Euthanasia and suicide. A while ago, my dad said, I don't look in the mirror now unless I have to do my hair. I don't recognise the man looking back at me.
1: When I look in the mirror, <sighs> no. I don't believe it. No. That isn't me. That's not me. I'm not, you know, I really don't think now. No but... I'm,
0: I'm looking at you from something that isn't actually here. This has been repeated to me a number of times since then. For a while it became one of the looped conversations that we had. Sometimes I replied with, I know, you've told me. But other times, I didn't bother. I also sometimes feel like that when I look at him. Who is this man sitting across from me? Where is my dad? Recently a new phrase was coined to describe my generation people who were born in the transition between Generation X and Millennials, between 1977 and 1983, who had analogue childhoods and digital adulthoods. We're being called Xennials. I'm reluctant to embrace this term, to be honest, partly because Millennials get so much shit and I don't want to betray them. There's nothing wrong with being a millennial so why try to be in a different box? But there is a truth in this distinction. The experience of people from my generation is very specific. As Hassan Minaj puts it in his show Homecoming King, they say that every generation is defined by a great struggle or tragedy And it's wild that our kids will never know that there was a period in this country where you had to make a choice between being on the Internet or being on the phone. He's joking about the struggle and the tragedy, but he's not joking that there is a specific set of cultural experiences that come from being born on the edges of significant cultural changes that people born on the more recent side will never understand. My dad is also part of a very specific generation. He was a child between the World Wars and he was an adult after they had ended. Yes, it was gaslighting
1: along the street and the, and the gaslights had to be lit. Each one had to be lit. So the guy, there was a gas a gaslighter, a man, who walked along and lit them one by one. Right. I just remember watching that from the upstairs window at my grandparents' house.
0: In the same way that I identify with millennials but understand where Generation X is coming from, so my dad would come to identify with the countercultural forces of the 60s whilst understanding where the pre-war generation was coming from. He was a conscript to the army during what is often called a just war and he has lived to see unjust war after unjust war, Be fought. He has lived to see a time when liberals write think pieces to argue against punching Nazis. Despite being from a different generation, he has always had a lot of sympathy for the circumstances of younger generations. He has never been someone who talked about how easy kids have it these days. He's been consistently horrified by the way that kids actually have it worse in many ways these days. For him, the spirit of 1945 had suggested that the future would be better, so much better than this.
1: If you go back to before the Industrial Revolution, if you go back to 17, 1650, yeah. the world between William the Conqueror and 1650, or a bit later, 1730 or something like that, there'd have been less difference within, you know, over all that period of time than there has been in sort of every 10 years since
0: probably. And you've lived most of that time? Well I lived yeah. You've, you've lived through the the wildest technologically advancements do you think throughout history?
1: Possibly but I mean to have lived but <laughs> Yeah I'm, because it's not only that things have changed but the speed of change has grown it's going faster so although one... obviously if you you know if you'd lived in 1730 uh, by the time you were dead in 18. Sixty no uh, in eighteen hundreds, there would have been considerable changes. But the changes between what 1945 and, well, nineteen forty five and what or nineteen yeah and today are enormous. Yeah, the speed of change is fantastic. Speed of change has changed. I mean, the internet sort of came
0: in in ten years, didn't it? But well, one thing is, you... steam came in in over sort of fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty years. I lived through the birth of the internet and the positive visions of the cyber future, the immense possibility of this tool to connect people, break down barriers, circumnavigate power and the media, democratise the arts, change the world for good. The internet, to me, offered hope. A general pathway towards improvement but just as 1945 promised so much but then the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s challenged all of those promises in terms of the internet those hopes that future is not the one that has so far happened yeah i was born in a world of before the internet and it came in when I was a, a teenager or it became more, more widely used yeah. and then I was realising that only over late. the last five, six years what? have I actually started using the internet to this kind of extreme level where I'm on, online all the time but you were offline, you were born into an offline world yes, I, mean, I didn't uh,
1: I didn't do counter computers until what to 80, in the early 80s 81, 82 or something like that they would start. You, you would find the odd school with a computer and, 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 and well, no, I actually first encountered them in the 1950s because I happened to live in a flat above a mathematician who was the computer technician on the London University Medical School computer, which was one of these huge computers of the day with valves, and uh, I think it still had like valves, we have, and anyway, you know, it, it took up a whole air conditioned, huge room. And he used to go up every day on the bus, and I used to sit up on the bus and talk to him. We used to go up together, and he got me interested in it, it took me a year and showed me around. And I think they were programming in Cobalt or something like that, one of the very early languages. And he told me a bit about it. But he was mathematical, I wasn't, but he, you know, I got interested. And then there, I was walking down Tottenham Court Road, and, and a bit later in the 80s, I saw uh, the first, I forget what it was, it was an American computer. It was a little, it was the, the, the first kind of desktop that you could buy. It wasn't a Commodore, it was before that, so it was bigger, this old desk. But I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, it's happened. Soon be able to buy a computer, and I was always interested in it. From the, I always saw from the beginning how useful it would be in terms of word word processing, because I was a bad typist. I mean, I always typed all my life. Five, I typed to write, but i would never learned to touch type, and I, I mean, I saw this thing which could. Yeah, you could type and and erase and alter and all that sort of thing. You didn't have to use a tip X and take it out and go back. you didn't have a terrible messed up manuscript, which you then had to retype for the next version, you know. So that's how I got into it. So then I bought myself, because I was working on a film, the film paid half the money. I got myself a dedicated word processor, which worked with an
0: Adler type My dad was the person who brought the internet into my life. He had computers early for better typewriting initially, but he got interested in computer programming systems like BASIC. And you could program it yourself if you knew any BASIC. And did you do that? I learned enough BASIC, very simple BASIC,
1: to program a kind of very simple game and also a very simple kind of random poetry generator. But it was very simple because you had to write... I simply wrote lots of phrases and lines. And then wrote this... You know, if if this, then that. If this one, then that one.
0: Well, I I remember... I learned a a little bit of BASIC from you when you had the PCW in Coventry in your flat. Yes. We were talking about that earlier, actually, when we... You had BASIC and you had LOGO, which was the graphics. Yeah. People who... People who listen to this, it may have experienced the Logo at school with the robot, yeah. which you program to go on different angles. Yeah, there was yeah. a there was a computer program version of That's that. That's right, because that was when the school computers were nearly all the
1: BBC computer. That's right. Which, when I was a kid,
0: actually. Yeah. Yeah. When the internet came in, he got on board that too, becoming an early convert to the Church of Apple, a religion he still follows, although he has a lot more criticism of their doctrines now.
1: So then I got my first Mac book, That's before the internet, a very little one, which you remember, because you had it at university, a little yeah, I did, one. Yeah. And then I went sort of slowly of my up through Macs, until I got on the internet, you know, and it's gone on from
0: there. His early iMac was located in his front room in Cardiff in the early 90s. I think it's a matter of that I got an Apple, didn't I?
1: In the early days of graphic, the the first graphic, yeah, it was Apple who introduced the graphic interface, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. And that's what I got. I mean, I got a little black and white silver Apple notebook, didn't I? That's what you you had when I... And on that, that was the kind of extension of the word processor that I'd had. For those, yeah. Yeah. So that's why I bought it. And then I got into knowing. And as I say, I'm not geeky. So once once I'd learned a particular system, it's much easier for me to go on with that system. But I do like. I I think, I don't know, I think it's arguable the
0: Apple is a better system. I couldn't argue it. I don't know enough about it. He learned how to code in HTML and made himself a website. At this point, I didn't know many other people who had computers, let alone websites. My secondary school was only just starting to have computers. We stole our essay info from CD-ROMs of Encyclopedia Britannica back then. Wikipedia was just a twinkle in James Whale's eye. I didn't use the internet much initially, but when I did, I used it in my dad's room. When I went away to university, my dad created a part of his website that I could use to put up essays and writing. I would email him my text from the computer room at the university and he would sort out the code and put it up online. This was my first experience of publishing independently and directly to the world. Now I do that every day without even thinking about it via Facebook and social media. But back then it was magic. Magic that I didn't understand, but that my dad. Did. I mean, I don't code, You know, I can't. You did, but you, you did. you had a. Uh, you were the first person I knew at the age of. I guess you must have been what seventy. You were the first person I knew, maybe a bit younger, sixty-five maybe or something, yeah. to have a website. I mean, well, I it didn't was know when you were at any university anymore. because we put on it just a, a year before. Yeah, we. You had an ex. I had a section, didn't I? Yeah, I'd learned a little bit of. HTML. That's right.
1: So I could write write the pages. I mean, they were just pure text. There was no... I mean, there were websites by then already around with, with um, graphics on. But this was just pages of text and you can use the HTML to refer from... what Page the, to page. Yeah, to page to page. And that's all it was, really. It was a sort of title page with the pages listed and a reference from page to page. All text. And, and part of it was the stuff that you wrote. The yeah, university I, education yeah I, ten, I, half the pages
0: ago. i wrote a, a sort of collection of essays called "A university education yeah. some of them were actual essays i wrote on my course yeah. i guess and, and poem um, and, and some of them were poems and yeah. some of them were essays about university that- at some point between university and when i came to live near my dad in london my knowledge of the internet overtook his But that slight lead was expanded into an impossible chasm when I got a smartphone. Smartphones fundamentally changed the DNA of the internet, but my dad didn't get one initially. Years later, now he does want one. It's too late. His mobility issues make it hard for him to use them, and his brain can't overwrite old operating systems. He is bamboozled by the internet frequently now. Even emails can confuse him. Did you know that you can hear Apples for Everyone on the internet? I just found it there. Yes, Dad, I do know. I uploaded those tracks myself. And anyone can play them? Yes. I wanted there to be a record of the songs that we sang, even though we don't sing them anymore. Well, I'm glad they're there, because I wanted to hear the songs again. This, this was, was another regular conversation that me and my dad had. My dad periodically discovers our old band's back catalogue online and every time he's shocked that it's there it's not just that the internet has moved faster than he could it's also that he is forgetting what he used to know his mind is reaching back through time to before these developments happened, and then being surprised by them again aftermath of both the UK election and the Brexit vote I was talking about the dire political situation we are in with my 92 year old dad and I wrote this tweet. My dad just said that what we really need now is for a party that stands for fully automated luxury communism with an intersectional focus that will dismantle the capitalist structure and redistribute wealth before instigating universal basic income. This would disassociate income from employment along the lines of late Marxist Andre Gortz. I mean, he's not wrong, but
1: but yeah, yes, I, think we can I can't make it happen. <laughs> what
0: your Andre Gortz <laughs> yes. is your your big uh, thinker hero? Well, hero. He is, he is,
1: yes, right. Yeah, he's the found solution that is not recognised.
0: Well, a tweet that I did uh, quoting you talking about Andre Gortz (laughs) and uh, mentioning uh, other things that you agree with, like fully automated luxury communism, I think it mentioned, and... uh various intersectionality um we were we're all in this tweet i mean it was a glorious tweet it is a utopian tweet that i'd like to live in <laughs> i i I, supp- I i think Gortz has a lot of interesting things to say i mean he he his main his main thing for listeners if you want a a broken what's what's it, what's Gortz in a soundbite
1: I couldn't do that now. That's precisely the kind of thing that I couldn't well, do well. If I do it, I did you it, can agree I or disagree, yes. I guess. So yeah. let's
0: see. Um, so well, I can... Yeah, don't, can no, you yeah. do it. You'll the be only thing I now.
1: can say is that work and employment should not be considered... The same. Yeah, exactly. That no, well, yes. was doing a gesture. Yes. It's not a, the, the great problem. I think is that I do not think it's possible under capitalism. Basic income is possible under capitalism, but right. it would still be administered capitalistically, and it would still be, uh, it would be different. Right, now, universal I am basic not, income is I another not, thing that you know, I have now lost that that kind of ability to simply to. Uh, Describe what Dork Gort says, that's why, in all these books I'm writing for the unfortunate people who get them. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I steal so much, because literally, whereas in the past, I would have written as so-and-so says, and then, in my own words, described what they said, yeah, now I, I can't do that so I actually have to say as Gortz says and then quote Gortz so, uh, which is contrary to copyright and everything else but which I well you know the books or you may not I don't expect you read them but,
0: he uh, makes well. no money from them and yeah. don't sue him yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he's 92 years old for fuck's <laughs> sake yes
1: yeah, so I can't actually give you a, a sort of coherent straightforward breakdown of Gortz which I would have been able to do yeah, but I just say send people away to read him.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, can he, we do that? Don't, do,
1: yeah, you, don't you have a thing at the end of this when you plug something?
0: Yeah, you can. You can definitely <laughs> plug out Andre Gortz. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it, it's basically that you know. uh sharing whatever work it, there is to do, reducing the amount of work we do and the stuff that's yeah. essential that people have to do for our own survival, like sewers or bin men or bin, bin people, sorry. Um, those things like, sh- are shared amongst everyone and everything else we just do because we want to do it, right? So we, if you want to do things, then do them. But if you don't want to do things, then don't do them it's a great utopian idea yes, pragmatically under- I don't know how we how we get there from here and so I, anything that steps slightly in that direction I would support but ultimately I think I politically agree with you on Gortz I'm not kind of as it excited by him as you are I guess but that's because I guess I got his ideas before I heard his name I think you communicated his ideas when we were when I was a kid I think I remember in Coventry on a bus we had this conversation about mm. work and about like we had this big conversation and I remember you saying and you know and saying like we split up the all of the the, the, the roles that nobody likes to do and they only do a couple of days or hours a week or however it works with everybody collectively. Uh, pulling together and that had, uh, so yeah. that that had the effect on my, my politics so when you've quoted him later in life and given me his books they've had yeah. no effect and it's a little bit like I have this this I've had this relationship with with music so often you, you know sure you can go back and listen to the originals and you can see how they've influenced the people who come later but I heard the people who came later first so they've got them and other things so I'm more interested in them. And I guess you had that and other things. You had Gortz and other analysis. And you were my dad. So I had a relationship with you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah and so, so so, for me, I've never managed... Gortz has not obsessed me like he has obsessed you. No. Um, I guess I don't really want to be reading or supporting white guys. I mean, he was, you know, he was a Russian, but... Like he was, no, who's
1: German who became a uh, friend? Okay, there you go. French, That's right, German,
0: yeah. even, 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 even war white. Yeah, um,
1: more or French, really. I mean
0: but, but well, French, German, whatever. Yeah, I want to like, I think the people we Canadian, should be listening Austin. to and who should be leading us forwards into the future are not, uh, a, 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 an old. Uh, white guy, however brilliant and genius they were. It should be young people of colour who are not men. I think that the people who have had cultural power will have less to tell us than the people who have not had that power. And so they're, they're the ones who might have an answer for how to change this shitty paradigm that we have. The tweet became a thread. It got a lot more attention than most of the things that I tweet. I wouldn't say it went viral But its stats when I originally wrote this narration were 29,297 impressions, 3,765 engagements, 153 retweets and 166 likes. Did you you have hope or not hope? (sighs) (laughs) Hope
1: or not hope?
0: Hope or not hope? I have Hope. hope.
1: Uh, I have hope. It's, good. It's possible. It's conceivable.
0: We've all just got to read goods. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's it. That would help. My dad made websites and blogs for years. He self-published his fiction using the website Lulu. But social media is something that he just missed. I think that's a shame because he could have been good at it it would have allowed him to communicate the ideas he so desperately wants to communicate. Not that I'm suggesting that his tweets would change the world, but they would have been heard by someone. And my dad's life has in some ways been characterised by failed attempts to get people to hear his ideas. He used to regularly say to me, I should really get myself one of those, you know, what do you call them, the thing you are holding in your hand. An iPhone? Yes. I see people on them. They can do lots of things. And then I'd remind him that we've tried that before, that he's been given an iPhone to try out. And despite my lessons and the instructions I'd written for him, he just couldn't get his head around it. We've also tried him with tablets, which he also can't quite get. He can still use his Kindle, or at least he could when he was 93, but that's as far as he's got with that kind of tech. Your big statement for the world, I guess, as an eighty-nine-year-old person, is the two two titles of your novels, isn't it? Which are
1: which title? What's you know, the statement made up from titles of my novels? Which one? You you you.
0: Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Everybody believes
1: yeah well, the what, what, oh, well one is no. written the other
0: one isn't no but those are the two isn't it yeah that that's the one I'm nobody, nobody knows anything for definite but that everybody believes in something greater mm-hmm. that's what, what I'm writing that's the kind of distillation of your life's that's your life in a tweet
1: that's nobody a tweet knows. everybody believes
0: Yeah, that would fit in a tweet. Yeah, of course. Oh yeah, I see. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, is that fair to say? What? That that's what you've learned from your life.
1: It's one of the things. Yes. I mean, I I would probably put it in a different way if I if I was asked, you know, to try to define it. I mean, the books are one thing and another, but it's basically true. Yeah, basically.
0: I used to work as a library assistant. And one of my jobs was to provide training to pensioners in how to use the internet. These sessions were, rather patronisingly to my mind, called Silver Surfer sessions by the council. But they were a good resource that helped people to enter the internet age. I ran those sessions at a time before tablets had really become a thing. Now they are. Many older people who have not been able to get into the internet before have found tablets and touchscreens much more intuitive. Because of this, they could join and enjoy social media. But unlike many of those people, my dad had kept up, which means that this change is actually harder for him to make. I remember initially finding touchscreens and the slightly different way that the mobile web works confusing, but it didn't take me long to retrain myself. But then, I don't have dementia. Sometimes when you've learnt the old rules, it's really hard to learn the new rules. I helped my dad join Twitter. It was before his dementia had set in and he was still very active online. But it didn't work for him. He was frustrated by the character limit. Being concise with words is not a natural talent in my gene pool. And he was overloaded by the amount of information. When he joined Twitter, he kept thinking that he had to reply to, or at least read, every tweet from the people he followed, or he was being rude. And you're still optimistic.
1: I wouldn't say that exactly.
0: But you more than me believe that there's a possibility of changing fundamentally the society that we're in. Whereas I think we're just probably destined to destroy ourselves in some way. There may be, we may continue after that destruction, but it won't be fun to live through. If you look through history, it's never fun to live through the times when everything crumbles and then things rebuild again even if society doesn't completely annihilate itself which is more possible than ever before it's 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 not it's not um it's not going to be fun to live through that time i don't think and i don't really have much hope Um, i'm not optimistic
1: but i mean i just don't think one can know. I think joy can be found in either. life, I if you can find either.
0: joy in life, find joy in life, until you can't. Oh yeah, that, but I mean, I and thought then, about the future. But I the I'm future, never, I know. I, I, no, I don't think there is one.
1: Well, I don't know whether there is one. I mean, I'm not as pessimistic. Because you either.
0: think nobody can
1: know. Nobody yeah, well, can I'm not know. sure what I believe. Um, when I believe it's impossible to know, for me to know.
0: But you think that society needs to change.
1: I think it needs to change. But whether it's possible, whether it's capable of change it's is a question. Yeah. That's the real... I mean, it's a question of whether consciousness can overcome human nature.
0: I find it both amazing and confusing that my dad has managed to retain his belief that change is possible for the amount of years he has lived. Particularly because... He has lived through many periods of time that would have made me give up. I feel like any belief I have in change, no doubt partially installed in me by him during my childhood, has left me now. I cling on to the possibility that widespread, systemic change can happen. I can't and won't discount it altogether altogether. But I really can't see a pathway to it, and it doesn't seem likely to me. You think that there is
1: hope? I don't know whether the, the, I, I just don't, can't make a, any kind of prediction about the future. I can't yeah. imagine I can't imagine it. I mean, you can well, imagine it will be bad, or you can imagine it will be good. Well, you're
0: not going to live in it.
1: But I can No, exactly. Is that why that, you can't
0: imagine it? Like it doesn't. Probably, yes, yes.
1: Something to do with it. It's, no, it's why I'm not attempting to project it. I mean, if you know, if it's within your lifetime, you're you're talking about a future you will actually see. Yeah. You know, certainly, the beginning of it. And and but I'm, you know, I'd be talking about a future I couldn't, you know. I couldn't
0: see at all. My dad gets so swept up in the potential of people that he still believes they can change the world. Not on paper. He's always called himself a pessimist and he certainly doesn't see things as having progressed positively during his life. But emotionally, he can throw all the analysis out of the window because he believes on some level that love and political arguments can transform our scarred and violently unequal world. We've introduced Gortz to a large population. This is fantastic. They will pass it on to their followers. This was his reaction to nine retweets, by the way. If anything, getting older has increased his belief in hope and people, even as he finds himself despairing more and more about his personal circumstances. In these final years, he's even moved from an agnostic position to some sort of religious belief. He talks of the unknown other rather than God, but he seems to believe that consciousness is something outside of neurons and evolution, something infinite and mystical.
1: How do you say goodbye? I don't really know. I think all you can do is say goodbye. I can't formulate how you should say it, that maybe depends upon you, I mean, I would say it with great love and affection for the life that I have lived, the people that I have known, but that was when I was part of their world, part of that same life part of earthly existence. What will happen after that, nobody knows until until it happens to them. No living individual in earthly existence can say. And since nobody who's dead can communicate with earthly existence and within earthly existence, you you can't know. You're going to find out. Or you may not find out because that's it.
0: He would still say that you can't know and that it's arrogant to think that you can. But the phrase he used to use was nobody knows, but everyone believes. I would say that he has fully embraced belief now. Whether well, the life
1: on Earth is the end of existence. And I mean, there are all sorts of interesting questions. Are there other Earths? Are there other people living in the universe? Are there other universes? I don't necessarily believe in a God, but I do believe in the great unknown other in the sense that I think there must have been a cause of existence. Existence must have a cause. And that implies something outside and beyond materiality and earthly knowledge.
0: I've just left him. His closing remarks. Well, we've started something today. Thank you so much. That's a great public act.
1: The idea of the Guo rather than god of a great unknown other. I would totally agree with science that, that there is no god. Well, no, no, I wouldn't agree besides there is no God. I would say that one cannot know whether there's a God because some things are outside knowledge. One is unable to, to, to make experiments to, to formulate hypotheses and then experiment prove or disprove them. That can only be done where you can in a
0: material world that we live in. He went through a phase of saying, bless you, to people both as a greeting and as a goodbye. There is something within his ageing that does seem holy. One thing I'm grateful for is that as he has aged, he has clung to love, kindness and the possibility of people. There are different ways people can age. For many, it makes them more closed-minded, more suspicious, more bigoted. That has not been the way it has been for my dad. After I'd finished the first draft of this piece, I went round to visit my dad. I found him in a stress because he couldn't open a thing he'd been writing on his computer because the software wouldn't load. I took a look and found a solution to the issue without updating his operating system. He kept telling me not to worry and apologising for taking up my time. I told him to stop doing that and that I was happy to help. Within his apologies was the frustration I always catch in his voice when he objects to having subtitles on something that he's watching. He wants to not need them, because the old version of him could hear fine. But when he turns them off, he just can't understand what is happening. He has a similar issue with his computer. The old version of him could do this stuff fine, so he feels he is somehow letting himself down by not being able to do it now. He often used to want me to go away and let him do it himself, but he also knew that if that happened, he may not have been able to solve the problem and would spend hours trying to solve something I could do in minutes. I told him it was understandable to be frustrated by computers and change, and that I find it pretty hard to navigate his Mac system because I'm so used to using Word. So I can only imagine how frustrating and confusing such small but big changes would be for someone in his situation. He told me he'd be okay sorting it out as he had an instruction manual for his software. I looked at it and I realised it was 10 years old. Not only was the information contained within it anachronistic, the way that we source information about our technology has changed since then. Do they even make instruction manuals anymore? Certainly I can't imagine looking at a computer's instruction manual rather than googling the problem. A little while after I'd sorted out his computer while we were having a cup of tea I put my theory to him that whilst he is intellectually pessimistic he is emotionally optimistic. He somehow manages to keep hope alive. He was sceptical of it, saying that yes, there is a chance of change happening, that people reading André Gortz could change the world, but that there were also great forces making that unlikely. The world as humans know it could end shortly after my life does, he said. I realised that maybe our positions aren't that different after all. And I wondered if, in the moments that I managed to believe in hope, I seem as inspiring and naive as he does to me. It made me wonder if maybe the spark that I see in him, that belief in people and ideas, if that isn't also in me, despite my frequent feeling that it isn't. If I might communicate that to other people, regardless of how I'm feeling. If the world as humans know it lasts for long enough for me to reach a similar age to my dad, I wonder if I will be someone who frustrates and delights young people with my faith in them, whether I will still accept the possibility of hope and change. I hope so. Certainly, I currently think that giving up hope entirely is a privileged thing to do. But the last question that we, I ask everybody is, uh, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, Andre Gortz. Andre Gortz. Yes,
1: please, everybody, read him. Yes. I mean, there are in two books. Everything is said. Uh, the Critique of Economic Reason is the first one. The second one, I can't remember. Farewell is, to the Working is, Class? No, no, no. That no, that That's interesting. But uh, look, there are two positive future-looking things. As what did I just say? The a critique of economic reason, critique of economic reason, and a, a more recent book that he wrote, which is actually simply about the nature of work and its relation to employment, etc.
0: Okay, well, I'll try and work out which yeah. one that is. Anyway, and Lincoln. Yes. Anyway,
1: read any Andrew Gortz you can.
0: Yeah, I've read. I think I've read uh, Farewell to the Working Class because you gave me that when I was at uni. Yes. And I, I think Jen has read. The letters? Did he do some letters? Yeah. Am, am I right? Him and, and his there, wife. There was that story, yes. The yes,
1: love. If he, he wrote for his wife with whom he died. Right, they, so they both did
0: choose but to die they together. They did choose to die together. Yeah, when they were Which When was, they were, yes. had reached the end of they, their lives when they were old. Yes, that was very really beautiful. And he, they did, uh, so there's a, like a, a beautiful kind of love letters book yes, out there as well. That's but that's just that's more right. for, for spiritual and emotional yeah, nourishment rather than to, uh, to get some kind of critique on the world. Andre Gortz committed suicide or euthanasia, depending on how you look at it, with his wife in 2007. My dad had been a fan of Gortz's work for decades before that. He wants people on the left to view Gorse as the new Marx. I have some sympathy for that position. Over the last few years, it's been a delight to my dad to see people suddenly starting to mention Gorse by name and to come up with ideas like universal basic income and fully automated luxury communism, which my dad sees as being very much in the Gorse wheelhouse. The last addition to my dad's sense of politics came from my reading of the works of Kimberly Crenshaw and Bell Hooks and other black feminists and womanists. When I explained these ideas about structural oppressions and how they intersect with each other to my dad, he got the idea very quickly. I'm glad that we had those conversations before his memory had started to fail us. In his late 80s, he began to call himself an intersectionalist, and went around telling everyone to find out about this theory it reminded me of when he saw the wire a few years before that and he kept going up to people of color and asking them if they'd seen it only without the unintended racism of specifically profiling people but it comes from the same place of wanting people to see structural oppression and exploitation and wanting all of humanity to be represented in the media when he gets inspired by things He thinks they will be the solution. He believes in the power of words, of art and of ideas. Soon he will not be able to make words or art or have ideas. That time, in fact, may have already come. He will leave them in documents he has written, in the paper and digital remains of his brain and in the people who he has touched. Influenced,
1: no, I think at a certain point, you know, yeah, um, I, I still believe, you know, that human beings should be allowed to be treated by their doctors like Sam was treated by the vet. Say, well, you know, he's, he's not going to get any better, I and mean, you know, there's nothing, you know, he's not, he's
0: miserable, he's not. Da, de, da, de, da. Once, when we were having our circular euthanasia conversation, I pointed out to my dad that if he did want to make the same decision as Gore's, he could look up ways to kill himself on Google. Surely they don't allow people to put up stuff like that, he said. They do, I said. Probably the first result will be a helpline for people thinking of doing it. Google will make sure that that comes up first, but everything is on the internet. There aren't any rules as such. And there will be lots of advice for you on how to do that. If you want to, this was a strange moment for me because my dad, five years before that would have known that. And the dad that I was talking to then would probably forget it. And so I would have to decide whether to tell him about that option again. Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea memories of my dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at sunlesspod. You can email the show at down Pod at gmail.com The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at GooseFat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother, Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk. If you go to podcastviews.com then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes and if you do it you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Welcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey down to a sunless sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted, because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. In the early days of my first
1: marriage, I used to sort of be a Labour activist to go you know, an election, to go around, you know, Sheila and I did that,
0: yeah. And you wrote stuff, you've written stuff to try and get stuff changed, that's been one of the ways that you've tried to change things, you've been on a few marches here and there, we went on one oh, together. That one, one.
1: great, yeah. My best friend, Derek, because Derek and I were very interested in girls at that time. Right. We used to spend our weekend sort of walking over the nearby commons and things. Yeah. Talking about sex and politics. You'd have liked him. He was an anarchist from the beginning. <laughs> I was a communist at that time. <laughs> I actually was in the Young Communist from period. Yeah. But I was certainly a communist in belief, you know. And he was an anarchist. Right. In the beginning, yeah, we always had this, but he would have been because uh, he was. You know. I find
0: it hard to get on with anarchists, but I'm sure he would. no, he would have got <laughs> on with him.
1: he's great, I'm sure
0: he was.